0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this History Tea Time chat. Welcome, everyone, to this History Tea Time chat, which um, I'm putting on especially, it isn't my normal time, but I am uh, I am not at my best at the moment uh, after surgery. But anyway, I am motivated to go through this uh, new evidence which has come out to support the idea that, in fact, the princes in the tower um, didn't escape were actually allowed out to freedom by their uncle, Richard III. Therefore, they weren't murdered. They certainly weren't murdered by him. And um, they lived in order to actually invade later on, to try and take their place as rightful um, uh, kings of, of England. So let's go into the evidence. First, thank you so much for joining me. I'm streaming live on Instagram youtube and facebook uh i have just done a little instagram to explain my bandage um so i won't go into that too much but um yeah so we're here to talk about the prince and the tower so let's let's do that welcome everyone thank you for joining me i can see lots of people joining from all over the world it's such a pleasure to be with you here today um so the um the weekend was actually um uh i was almost upstaged maybe i was upstaged by uh by another philippa l philippa langley with her documentary on channel five at uh, channel four excuse me um about the princess in the tower the new evidence um but i was actually doing uh with with uh catherine the historical Cabaret collaborator we were actually um doing uh the Tudors Online History Festival which I know many of you joined us for thank you so much for that um our next one is on sale already actually it's Stuart's Return because we did the Stuarts as our original online history festival um which would have been last autumn and it was so popular and people were so interested in the Stuarts that we are continuing with the Stuarts next spring Ali loved the festival thank you so much Laurie was there as well um and uh Yeah, if you if you missed it, uh, well, if you if you had a ticket and you missed the talks, remember, you have got access to them until the end of January. Um, You can also buy the talks as a pack as an addition to your the next Stuart's Online History Festival ticket. And also I will be packaging them up and uh, I will give you more details about how you can get hold of them if you uh, didn't have a ticket and you wanted um, you wanted to get hold of those uh, those talks, including the speaker q a so all the historians who were involved did a q a with us um everyone's internet worked everyone got there it was fabulous uh so you can look at you can uh, find out which of the tudors uh all of them loathed the most so you can find out who tracy borman loathes the most if you want if you haven't already seen that so that's also included um I love this. This is definitely going to be a topic today. This is a this is a topic which, well, clearly energizes people. Clearly has energized me enough to get out of my sick bed to um to to talk about it. So um I hope you appreciate my 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 efforts. I hope you uh my analysis is useful to you, maybe gets you thinking. Um and uh yeah, so it's it's definitely an interesting topic. So, um, before we move on, I just want to um, say a, a shout out, because obviously, um, not obviously, but you can support me with um, badges on Instagram, uh, stars on Facebook, super chats on YouTube, but also, uh, but the way I love you to support me the most is my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash British history, because it's five pounds a month and I can give you so much more back. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Kim, Michelle, Tina, Danielle, and Christina, because they have all become, um, patrons, uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, so, uh, Jo, thank you. She's just pointed out on um, on Instagram that this show goes live in the US tonight. So um, so maybe you can hear what I have to say and then watch it and see what you think. Or you might want to watch this after you've watched it. So this documentary came out on Saturday night uh, here in the UK about the princes in the tower with this new evidence. And so the story we've received from history is um, well, it depends on who you are actually as to how you would summarise this. But let me give it a go. That uh, Edward IV dies suddenly in uh, or unexpectedly in um, fourteen eighty three, and <laughs> it's April, isn't it? Fourteen eighty three, and it's unexpected. He's, he's not that old. I think he's just turned forty or something, like that hasn't he? And um, he um, leaves a, actually, a, an heir and a spare, the 12-year-old Edward, who becomes Edward V, and his younger brother, Richard, Duke of York, uh, who's nine years old. The uh, the Prince of Wales, as was, Edward V, uh, as he is once his father dies, is at Ludlow Castle, where he has been since... Uh, since 1473 at the age of three he was moved there as uh as prince of wales um well actually sorry well as head of the council of the marches which is um a, a, a title and position given to the heir to the throne who is also the prince of wales once invested um and um Apologies if I ignore comments. I'm not trying to ignore comments. It's just when I try and read them, I um, I lose my train of thought. So let me try and keep with this. So you have the princes. Um, so you have Edward up in Ludlow. And then Richard is with his mother, Elizabeth Woodville. When Edward dies, Edward IV dies, Edward V, who's up at Ludlow, now Edward V, needs to come down to London um, to take up his new position as king and obviously for his coronation and uh he is uh he's with his um i think he's with his woodville uncles isn't he up in ludlow and he um and he's 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 coming down richard intercepts them um he's actually um named as their protector and so he wants to take uh as edward's protector should i say so he wants to um Take charge from now on. Escort the boy to the Tower of London for safety, in in readiness for his coronation. Um, Elizabeth Woodville, meanwhile, has gone into sanctuary in Westminster Abbey with her or the rest of her children, and is persuaded, uh, in uh, he- well, heavily persuaded. Don't know how much choice she's really been given that Richard needs to go to the tower as well um to be with his brother and then the uh the king's council or the the, the parliament as is at that time is presented with evidence that actually Edward IV was already pre-contracted to um a lady called Eleanor Butler before his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville. And this means that his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville is invalid, and therefore the children from that marriage are illegitimate. Um, At this point, we already have um, a son, the uh, Earl of Warwick, um, who's also a child. He is the son of the late um, George Duke of Clarence. But because Duke of Clarence was executed for treason, his children are barred from inheritance and therefore he is not a candidate for the throne and therefore Richard becomes the legitimate most senior candidate for the throne. And so you have Richard III. The boys are still in the Tower of London as they have been since they are there to prepare for Edward V's coronation, which of course now is cancelled or has been cancelled from June at the time that that Parliament have, have given this information, all uh, all arrangements for the coronation are stopped, and um, and uh, yeah. So so and 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 this is when they look for alternatives, did not have to look very far. Obviously, Richard therefore becomes king and, and he is crowned. The boys remain in the tower. Very soon they don't they're not seen anymore. So they've been seen playing, they've been seeing around the tower, and then people just see them less and less and less. And there is where the uh understanding of events then diverges. So it's been long assumed that Richard III has had the boys killed as um, he's actually usurped Edward V's throne and therefore needs them out of the way so that he can take power. And um, we've discussed this uh, at length on uh, History After Dark, actually. You know, he's there's actually, I think, possibly good reason for him to want to do that, that is, um, again, you know, without being too dismissive of its time and that kind of thing with him, w- you know, with there being boy kings, it's, it's, it's the end of, what potentially was feeling like the end of a period of very bloody civil war and a child king a 12 year old so a good many years off majority is not a situation that anyone who's fought for that stability would 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 be relishing um now so 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 it's been long assumed that that uh, richard actually has the, the children put to death cuz they disappear there's no account of where they've gone he doesn't mention where they've gone um, which is odd Uh, they, that equally, there's no, uh, mass said for their souls. If they'd died, there's no bodies shown, there's no funerals. And so other, you know, people have wanted to know it's it's a mystery, it's a mystery. And therefore people come down on, on different sides. So there's been in the, the past, um, over a decade, I uh, actually don't know when the Richard Th- the Third Society began, but the Richard the Third Society has been uh, was set up and wanted to find more evidence. You know what actually is the evidence for um, for how things were going in Richard Richard's reign for a start. What kind of king was he? And and one of the major elements, of course, in questioning what happened in Richard's reign is what happened to the princes in the tower. Um. And so, therefore, here here we here we get a divergence. You get people who um, the, the the sort of received history, if you like, is is that Richard killed them, and then the alternative history coming out now is well, what if he didn't actually? What if um, they either escaped or they were allowed to leave? They were maybe prisoners but moved, uh, and then actually the so-called pretenders, which came back to try and invade and take the throne from, um, uh, from Henry VII, uh, uh Perkin Warbeck and, and later on, uh, Lambert Simnel. Is that the right way around? Yeah. Uh, that they were actually, actually Edward V and then his younger brother, Richard, Duke of York. So, um, the story that uh, Philippa Langley now says is the story we can accept is is as follows. So the, the boys are separated at the Tower of London on or before the 11th of August, 1483. The younger Prince Richard is sent abroad with retainers uh, um, sent by Richard to look after him. And then the elder boy, Edward, is moved around the country. Um, there is a, a Silesian envoy, Nicholas van Poplo fabulous name, uh, who records that the sons of the princes were being kept as princes at Pontefract Castle um, and that he'd visited Richard there in May 1484. So they've been taken from the tower in, in uh, mid or before mid-August 1483 and um, actually moved to Pontefract Castle where they were being looked after. And then when um, when uh, Henry VII beats Richard the 3rd at the Battle of Bosworth in August 1485, the boys have to be moved abroad for their safety. Um, And uh, Richard, um, I think, goes to Ireland and um, Edward is supposed to go to the Isle of, uh, sorry, the Jer- uh, Jersey Isles, the, the Island of Jersey, so Channel Islands, I'll <laughs> get there in the end it's actually quite a confused story so let's but let's have a look at how this has been um this this conclusion has been come to and so philip is very um clear in how she um she interprets this this means that the boys were moved out of the town they didn't escape they were actually moved by richard and Um, were were allowed to live and and lived long enough and had enough support to come back and try and claim the throne from Henry VII um, at at later dates. So what I'm talking about here is um, is what I've watched in the documentary, which um, some of you who are not um, might be seeing tonight if it's uh, released in your region tonight and the go medieval podcast hosted by Matt Lewis who was also the chairman of the Richard the 3rd society and him uh, uh discussing this with um uh with Philippa Langley so they set up this uh what Philippa calls her evidence based project um and it's based very much on the back of the success that Philippa Langley had with finding Richard the 3rd in, uh, infamously, now in the car park uh, of some council buildings in Leicester, which was actually the site of um, of the abbey in which he'd been buried, and um, and they they found him, which was incredible, and has led to the Richard III Centre being created there, and uh, and Richard's reburial in the cathedral at Leicester, which is which is literally a few steps uh, away from it. Um, And Philippa talks about the catalyst for this project. It's called the Missing Princes Project. And the catalyst for her was um, the same week that, well, the week that Richard was reburied, she saw um, an article in the Daily Mail and um, the headline was something around um, that it's it's mad to make a child killer a national hero. Um, And this is what made her think we need a we need a, a a a actual investigation into whether or not he uh he actually killed the princes or not um and everything and, and, and when she's talking to matt in the um i think in the documentary but also matt in the podcast she's very um adamant that this is evidence based project she says it a lot um And um, she she also does, so in her own words, literally, this is her words, literally, leaving Leicester, leaving the reburial of Richard III, I was thinking I needed a new research project. And I want you to bear that in mind um, as we go forward on this. Um, The research, so the way they set it up, they set up a project and ask for volunteers. They call them members. Sometimes they call them researchers. But these are people who put themselves forward to um, have a look through their local archives, wherever they were in the world. I mean, this is a a brilliant idea because archives, if any of you have ever been fortunate enough to go and have a look around any archives, you will know that they are, I mean, every individual archive, whether it's in a cathedral or it's a county archive or it's a city archive or it's a, I mean, even private houses have their own archives or, you know, someone like Heber Castle has its own archives there is no way that we know not even just what is in there but what the content of what is in there is if that isn't too contrived a sentence to, to make sense of so it's, it's actually on the face of it a great idea great idea because you have this army of people who can go and, and into archives that that just wouldn't get looked at otherwise and they were asked to send everything and anything they found relating to the years 1483, 1484, 1485, 1486. And to send everything they found, whether it um, implicated or exonerated Richard, anything they found should go into the project. She was very clear about that. And the project was based on um, on cold case methodology. Apparently. Now, I do want to caveat that because they don't ever really go into what cold case methodology is uh, other than it should be a blank slate. You shouldn't go in with any hindsight. Um, Now, that's actually an audit. That's not a cold case investigation. Cold case investigations uh, from my research into what that means is When they're they're basically they're opened up when new evidence uh comes about. Generally, in the case of serial murders and serial rapists, they are the the two main types of case where cold case methodology is applied. And it's because there will be new evidence. Um, so obviously DNA evidence or circumstantial evidence or Um, whatever whatever it is but that is why cold case investigations are reopened Uh, yeah so I don't think this is exactly that because this is looking for um, for an answer to a question uh, quite specific so but she was uh, adamant send everything to her she got over 300 members and they each sent in a total um, so from all of them of around 300,000 documents uh, which uh, she had to have a supercomputer built for apparently in order to not only store them but be able to cross-reference them I have to say there is not a lot of mentioning in fact any that I can think of examples in either the documentary or the podcast of them cross-referencing anything now that that's not to say it's not been done but they haven't mentioned that in either the documentary or the podcast where they've cross-referenced things and that 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 comes into uh that that becomes relevant uh a little later on um and she she makes she does say that um that the uh the rich society is all about research like i said earlier it's set up to research to understand the period around richard um, and his short reign in greater details. But I think we can't ignore the fact that the common perception of the Richard Third Society by anyone who's not in it, is that they are very much there to rehabilitate Richard, Re- Richard's reputation. And that does cause issues of objectivity when it is Richard III um, Society members who are involved in this project you know Philippa though does say I asked for everything I asked for everything um on the Missing Princes Project website it does say we want this that this project is to help move our knowledge forward and to attempt to finally come to a definitive conclusion um generally that's not the way historical research goes you're not looking for an answer you're just looking and the stories come out. So if you hear, uh, like for instance, Joanne Paul was talking about her book, The House of Dudley with me a few months ago. Um, Obviously she set out to write a book about the House of Dudley, but the evidence she found, the stories she found, she didn't know were there. And so um, that's generally the way that these things are done, not you look for an answer. Um, So... um, the, the, and the, the, again, the project uh, questions, sorry, claims to be questioning, not repeating history. That echoes to me um, of other books that we've had around recently, which claim that there's been some sort of overall conspiracy uh, through the ages and across all um, other historians, that there's a certain story and everyone seems to be involved in making sure that that keeps going. Um, so, I don't think there's any conspiracy, but that seems to be how it's how it's being said. Um, because I'm wondering if there are any other Tudor truths that are being questioned in quite such uh, a, a, a way. Um, and the so you've got three hundred thousand documents, which sounds absolutely incredible. I'm sure there's just amazing things uh, uh, in that. Um, I don't think they're well they did, certainly didn't mention any peer review, so this does seem to have all been done within. Uh, other than bringing in, blessing, but Rob Rinder, who's a celebrity uh, judge, and um, and some and other historians just to look at particular pieces that they asked them to look at. I don't know how many independent people are involved in actually looking at the evidence that the part of these three hundred thousand documents but is looking at you know she's looking right down into just the the mundane what seems mundane but actually does give a lot of information accountancy records and things like that um that is quite often how uh historians piece together something like a progress or Simon Thurley has used um we've discussed Simon Thurley's book in the past it has the power um in my book club that's how he'll put together how a particular palace is built and used, and the layout of it, and how it was decorated from boring accountancy records. You know who's paid for what at what time and what have they paid for. So she's looking at right down into that sort of um, right into that sort of detail, or her and her um, her members are of this project. Um, so that suggests a level of detail here, um, which. Uh, in the documentary seems unlikely because she hadn't actually seen, well, it ca- unless it's just for TV, but it came across in the documentary that she hadn't actually seen these documents and, of course, she has to rely, of course, on someone interpreting them for her. Some of them are not only in, just in a foreign language, but obviously a, the foreign language of um, 400, uh, sorry, 600 uh, years ago. Um, and she does also mention that the research is ongoing, so that is, that's very promising. um so we seem to have two camps: um, the camp that says there just isn't any evidence that Richard III killed the boys, and therefore he didn't, and uh, and the camp that says, well, no, there's no evidence that Richard III killed the boys, but we still think he did. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, so let's keep going. Um, so uh, in the po- in the podcast, so listen to. Um, Go Medieval podcast with Matt Lewis, if you haven't already, with Philip Langley, because they, they go through, they go do go through all of this. Um, now, they claim that the evidence for Richard III murdering the, the, the or, or see, it could be that they just died on his watch. Cat Marchant puts across this theory that actually plague was in London at the time. It could have been a matter of neglect um, as opposed to murder. But it doesn't mean they survived. So anyway, that's a, there's another thing to to add into the mix potentially. But I'm not sure what evidence they need to what they're looking for, which would say in the other way that he did murder them. It, it it seems like if there's no actual, I don't know, I don't know what what they need as evidence that he did kill them before they would even remotely think that that's the case. Um. So for instance, the Dominique. Mancini uh dispatches he's a monk he, he's he's actually staying in the Tower of London apparently at the time according to another podcast that I was listening to um called A Short History which is very good very very good listen to that one as well um he's staying there he notices after a few uh, while well, during his stay that he sees the boys less and less and then doesn't see them at all um and he writes to his archbishop and um uh, and actually says, you know, people are starting. Well, Richard got Richard seems to have got rid of of his nephews. Um, now, what Philippa does say, which intrigued me a lot, is that she built up a timeline with these documents—an actual timeline of where the boys were at what point. I'd love to see that in a more complete narrative, um, because that sounds fascinating. That again, though, is not actually what has been presented but we will go into what has been presented and I understand there's time constraints uh, in terms of documentaries and podcasts well except for me because I'm going to go on as long as I want to today (laughs) um so yeah so I think it's a bit unfortunate that we don't get that timeline that would have been really nice to see something really clear if she's got it and that's what she's claiming to have um so what have we got? So we've got um one of the one of the I'm gonna get into the actual documentary evidence that um that they cite. But one of the things they do say as fact, uh and this links back to what I've just been saying about Mancini, is um they say that the first mention of the 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 idea that the boys might have been murdered comes with henry the 7th so excuse me henry tudor who would be henry the 7th uh comes with his um uh troops when they come over ready for the battle of bosworth as as is going to be um and that that with the um the victory of henry tudor at the battle of bosworth then this narrative around richard uh um murdering the the boys or having them murdered that's when that gains traction um now it I, I can't I wouldn't dispute that uh, Henry Tudor making out Richard who he's usurped um out to be a bad king, bad human being, morally inferior, uh, reprehensible person doesn't play right into Henry's hands of course it does of course it does um and but what this does do is completely ignore the fact that there were rumors going on in 14 at late 1483 in early through 1484 that the boys have certainly gone missing and that that Richard must have something to do with it. Maybe he's murdered them, but he's certainly got rid of them. And he gives he himself gives no explanation. Um so yeah, so Mancini's um account is just not really it's mentioned in the documentary, but it's not it's not adequately dismissed, in my opinion, as to why it's not taken more more seriously. It certainly means that the idea that it's never mentioned before August 1485 is it's just not true. It's not, that is not true. Um, now, Philippa points out that when Henry uh, wins at the Battle of Bosworth, he doesn't come straight down to London. And that that is because he's looking for the princes before he comes to London. I I don't know what the evidence is supposed to be for that. Um, would Henry have any idea where the princes were supposed to be, that they would be in the Midlands somewhere. Um it seems a very big jump to me with with no evidence cited that oh he stayed up in the in in around uh the Midlands because he's looking for the boys and therefore he knows the boys are alive therefore Richard III didn't kill the boys. That is that's a lot of jumping with 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 I can't I, I don't know they didn't cite anything for saying why that would have been the case um okay shall we get into the actual documents that were presented um they are exciting they're exciting because they are of the time that has been checked um but let's go into it so the first one is uh, proof of life they've said of Edward V still being alive in 1487. And this is in the Lille archive and it's a receipt. It's an accounting receipt. You know, he said about getting into the accounts, what is being paid for, by whom, when. Um, and uh, this is um, a receipt for 400 pikes, which Maximilian, King Maximilian I, Holy Roman Emperor has, uh, has ordered to collect. I love the idea of this, <laughs> like a receipt. I'm going to come and collect like a catalogue receipt or something. Um, for some reason Philippa says that, that pikes are for elite troops, Um your cavalry, your, your elite troops, so I'm not sure where she's going with that, Um, but that they're being paid for on behalf of the Dowager Duchess Margaret of Burgundy. Now Margaret of Burgundy is the sister of Edward IV and Richard Third, She's also therefore the aunt of the, the princes in the tower. And so the idea uh, that is actually that here is they are arming um, a force to invade England to push the claim of Edward the Fifth. Therefore, he's still alive. They believe he's still alive, and they're going. They want to invade and put um, put him on the throne, and obviously topple Henry VII. the Seventh. Um, the the wording of it um, is is very detailed. So to take and lead across the sea with a specialist German mercenary, who Madame the Dowager, so that's um, that's Margaret of Burgundy, uh, the sister of of the Kings and. Uh, aunt of the prince in the tower so who Madame the dowager sent at that time together with several captains of war from england to serve her nephew son of king edward late her brother who was expelled from his dominion so this is they've taken this as evidence that um it shows uh, a, a number of things this is in december 1487 this 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 date uh sorry this receipt is dated um and that, that this shows that Edward V survived the Battle of Stoke, which was in June 1487. That is when we're uh, we're told that that is uh, uh, um, uh, Lambert Sibnall who comes and he's the pretender and that actually he's captured by Henry VII and he works in the kitchens um, in the royal household. Um, so... And this is definitely, uh, yeah, done in the name of of, of the king, not um, not his cousin Edward Earl of Warwick. Because in this receipt, it has a number on a number of occasions. It talks about Edward the king, so it can't be um, apparently mixed up with Edward Earl of Warwick, who's the one who was the son of Duke of Clarence. Who's yeah? So all right, <laughs> keep it up. They will call it Edward. Um, Um, Now, my question with this one, my concern that hasn't been explained is why is there such a level of detail in a receipt? So Maximilian has ordered 400 pikes and we are led to believe that on the receipt for those pikes, it details exactly, exactly who they are for and why that seems an unnecessary level of detail now if that's the same on every receipt for weaponry at this time in this place okay but I would need more context to really believe that somebody who's ordering pikes puts every detail as to how those pikes are going to be used on the receipt um um it also throws up an interesting idea that um where, where was Margaret, and I don't know, maybe maybe one of you know, I have, I've only had so much time to look into all the different uh, questions that this, this new evidence uh, throws up, but what was Margaret's um, uh, standpoint when Richard comes to the throne? Does she accept that the boys are illegitimate? Um, does that just change when Richard dies because illegitimate or not, they're her nephews? um that that interests me as well um and the um the, the, they go into why is this stuff not in the English archives you know why've a lot of this so that was in the leal archive um and I think all of the yeah all of the um the, the the documentary evidence they found is is in the in on the continent well there's a um a uh, it's known that Henry VII has uh, a lot of documentation destroyed at Richard's castles, uh, at the Archbishop of, Archbishop of Canterbury's palace at Lambeth, apparently. There are hardly any records of uh, Richard's reign. There's a fire in the Jersey archives, uh, Jersey obviously being the place that Philippa Langley uh, thinks Edward was taken to at some point. And... Um, um, and also some records in Ireland because the Irish were supporting, um, these, these, these payments. That means there's a lot missing. There's a lot missing. And I struggle to believe or to understand why so much would be destroyed to cover up for one thing. Um, so w- w- what would Henry VII's motivation be to con- to cover up the continued existence of the princes in the Tower? Um, that sounds like a lot of records to destroy for that. it's a, And it's a very big assumption as well. So um, I also am not convinced that it proves that everyone who said they believed that they were fighting for Edward V actually believes he was edward V. um and i will go into why i mean i've got a spurious spurious theory just to uh put forward uh, a little later on which is really purely just to say there could be other ideas here um uh, the other thing to say about when something's missing is it's missing you can't say what it is it's not there so um it's it, You can't say, or Henry VII got rid of all those records because he was trying to cover up for the continued existence of the princes in the tower, it's not there, it's not there, so you don't know, you can't say that. Um, Elizabeth Norton in the documentary uh, also mentions Margaret of Burgundy, not a fan of Henry Tudor, as you can imagine. And she says she, Margaret Burgundy, absolutely would put someone else on the throne. If she could put someone else on the throne, she would. Um, Does it matter who then at that point? And I will come back to that because one of the arguments is that they wouldn't have put all this money, resources, uh, reputation, all this behind somebody who was, they knew to be uh, a puppet. So not really. But um, right, the second piece of evidence was that the first, this first-person narrative of Richard Duke of York in the Gelderland, uh, in Gelderland. I mean, Philippa was like, "This is this is, this is mind-blowing." Um, a running theme through these documents is, or the interpretation of these documents is, they have been taken on face value. That's definitely definitely how it comes across. Um, that so there's this this narrative that Richard Duke of York supposedly has written, which details like a diary, like a story, what happened to him from the moment he got uh, out of sanctuary into the Tower of London, that uh, he was kept in the menagerie, then he was picked up and taken elsewhere. The menagerie, where it's cited, he would have been seen. If you watch the documentary, they mention how the Tower of London is like a village, like a small town. There are thousands of people there. The menagerie is not uh, a um the menagerie is not a hidden place. So it's it sounds seems a bit odd that he's taken there, no one sees him, and he's taken safely away from there later on. Um so so yeah, so this 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 supposed diary of Richard Duke of York tells us all how, you know, fills us all in with all the details of what happened to him, uh, when apparently. Um now the 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 document itself is of the correct period, apparently, the paper, the way it's written. Um no one well, other than taking it as face value that Richard Duke of York wrote it. Um but there's, there's no, like, how do we know that, that there's, that that some, that it's not just somebody wrote it. This is, this is a mystery. This is already of interest to people. It kind of read to me like someone writing a story. Um, uh, And they brought in Yanina Ramirez, uh, who, who's a fabulous historian based at Oxford. And she did say that one seems a bit good, too good to be true, but they checked it. Um, Now, so Philippa from the outset has said this is an objective investigation. However, at this point, admits her own admission that she was too close to looking uh, to be a uh, well, she was too close for her to do the checks on this supposed diary entry. Uh, I call it a diary entry, sorry, a a, a first-person narrative from Richard Duke of York explaining everything that happened to him, um, that she was too close to do these extra checks. I mean, that's admitting uh, right there a lack of objectivity. So they did bring in in two experts, someone who was um, an expert in Middle Dutch, which is how it was written. So he would have written via a scribe. Um, Presumably he didn't, maybe he, spoke Middle Dutch, uh, and a, an a, um, expert from the Bodleian Library as well, who said it's semi-legal document um, in terms of how it's worded uh, and the watermark shows it's fully authenticated. Well, the watermark would have shown that the paper was made in a certain place at a certain time. So this is what, what helps to date the paper. Um, but the, why it was created, who it was created by, um, that is missing from from the explanation. The next thing is uh, a, a another document uh, which has the signature and seal, apparently, of Richard. So by this point, it appears that Edward has either died at the Battle of Stokefield or, uh, or I'll come back to this, but or is, is living elsewhere. Because if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I did a live about the church in uh, Coalfield so I was watching this documentary to get some of the questions answered which I'd posed a few weeks ago uh, wondering if something was going to be in there and um, uh, the church didn't wasn't mentioned once in the documentary by the way she does mention it in the in the podcast with Matt so I will I will go I will go into that in a moment Um, so we have another uh, document dated 1493 by this point it's richard who is heading up uh, supposedly richard who's heading up this um uh, his, his title for uh, uh, yeah title for um position of uh, king of england he's now calling himself richard of england and there's this royal seal on this document the document is actually um a pledge um of 30,000 florins to Albert of Saxony for his support in recognizing Richard as the King of England and that that will be paid to Albert within three months of Richard securing the throne in England. Almost like a no win no fee uh, arrangement. Um, now again here it signed Richard of England there's no mention as to why they know that that is a um, genuine signature. Where's the? This is what I'm saying: the the, the cross referencing all that. I didn't hear any evidence of cross referencing. Where is the? Um, how do they know that that's Richard of York's signature? He's nine years old when he goes into the Tower of London. Um, what documents has he got his signature on by that point? Uh, A seal, yes, is a way of authenticating documents at this period. That doesn't mean that someone can't create a new seal. So where's that evidence that that's an actual seal, that that proves, because this is what they're saying, that that actually proves that he is Richard Duke of York and by this point heir to, uh, supposedly rightful heir or actually rightful king, if his brother's already died, um, of England. Um, so um, now when I was watching the documentary, and people who are watching it tonight, you can look out for this, and may- maybe I've, I've got this wrong, but I think they said that uh, that he was calling himself heir to his father, Edward IV. Um, he's not heir to Edward IV, he's heir to his brother, Edward V. So uh, that wasn't explained either. And the last document that they describe uh, that they uh, have found and that they have featured is a description of a meeting between Richard Duke of York and Maximilian. So Maximilian is, if you remember, he's the man who's ordering the pikes for uh, the the for who he thinks apparently is Edward V. And now he's he's um he's continuing to put his money and his time behind um behind who we're led to believe is Richard Duke of York. Um, He describes his meeting with Richard Duke of York and he says, this is definitely him because he has three birthmarks. There's three marks that are unique to him. um, uh, And everyone who knows him will recognize him by these marks, his eye, his mouth and a mark on his thigh. And that's enough for Maximilian, Maximilian, excuse me, to say that, yes, his, um, this is, this is Richard. So, There's a few things there. Has he ever met Richard before? That wasn't mentioned. Um, There's sort of this assumption, oh, they're family, so they will know each other. They don't know each other. It's like, this is not, uh, well, I don't know if Maximilian was close enough, but um, but certainly um, Margaret of Burgundy doesn't necessarily have ever, well, she leaves the country before Richard is born. Um, and uh, I couldn't find reference to her ever coming back to England or the baby Richard going over to the continent. So why, um, I, I just don't think this can be taken at face value, that there's birthmarks and they're only known to people who already know them. They haven't necessarily seen them before. If they had met before, why was that not cited in the documentary or the podcast? Yeah, it's not enough just to say they're family. So they or they they knew each other. So they knew these birthmarks. Um, The one on the thigh as well is rather questionable. Really, what did they do? Get get his thigh out uh, when he was a small child to show everybody, so that just in case something happened in the future and he needed to be identified, uh, they could get his thigh out and show it. Okay that doesn't sound very likely does it so but what's in it for Maximilian why would Maximilian be um uh you know because one of the pieces of evidence is well Maximilian and Margaret Burgundy aren't going to be uh supporting someone who isn't isn't king or yeah well um, there again, there's not really much of an explanation here, other than uh, Maximilian is supposedly close to Margaret of Burgundy. Uh, don't think that's really a, enough of a reason to uh, to spend a lot of money um, and a lot of troops. but and also he was a Yorkist. I find that interesting, slightly odd, um, that uh, that someone uh, who is ruling on the continent, is somehow partisan to what's happening in in England uh but he didn't like Henry VII Henry VII wasn't giving him the kind of trade deals he wanted so that makes sense well I'm going to back this person because once he's on the throne he's going to owe me and we're going to have a much more favorable trade agreement for, for for me and for my country and for my people that that makes sense um but now we're getting back as well to so Philippa just says when Edward V dies at Stoke Field, Maximilian doesn't get the money that he's promised for backing Edward V, because Edward V died, so he's not he's not come on the throne. Um and so again, that was a leap. That was a leap, that was a sudden statement that hasn't got any evidence behind it that has been presented and um so Matt did question Philippa on that and she said oh well that that is one of these other lines of investigation that they're going into um to look at the Coleridge Church the Coleridge Church the one that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that evidence was um presented or published around about this time last year and quite, maybe a bit nearer to Christmas that Edward V actually has a tomb at uh, at this church in Coldridge in um in Somerset. So if you want to look at my analysis of that, it wasn't just my analysis, by the way, this is based on David Starkey's work and um, other people's work. So it's not mine, but I covered that a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the idea there being that well, if he didn't die at Stokefield, that maybe he was badly injured and therefore he went and lived out his life in Somerset. OK, um, no real explanation as to why that would be allowed so he takes to the battlefield against henry the 7th is badly injured and then spends out spends the rest of his life living as a war veteran effectively in somerset which is not um it's well within the country um so and actually uh well i went into the whole um was it a tomb of someone called evans or um um anyway I went into that one in the in the last uh in the last live um now here in the podcast um Matt mentions and this I think is 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 very interesting that Maximilian Maximilian excuse me had extracted from Richard a promise that if Richard died without heirs, Maximilian's family would become heirs to the English throne they take this as evidence that they were going to be on Richard's or the Yorkist side, if you like, as opposed to the Tudor side, and therefore back the princes. I think there's another way of looking at that. I think that that shows a ambition to take the crown of England and that to do that in the name of one of the princes, to exterminate the Tudor threat to exterminate Henry VII and the Tudor regime and then identify the person who you've said is Edward or later on Richard uh, as somebody who's been a fraud, you then replace them with yourself or your heir. So I think that's not evidence necessarily at all that Maximilian is somehow supporting the boys um, or that he believes that they are the, the true people. Um, now when I was doing my last live, I did, uh, I did, well, we are we're 55 minutes. Thank you ever so much everyone for, for, for staying with me through this. Um, but yeah, so when I was doing my live, um, I did pose some questions. That I said, I hope that the documentary would answer. And one of them was if Edward, V is buried in Somerset. What happened to his brother? Well, this does claim to this project does claim to have pieced together where um where Richard Duke of York was. Like I say, before the timeline that Philippa says she has, um, I would like to see that would be great. I mean, that would be incredibly interesting if we could see actually, you know, maybe uh, I imagine there would be gaps, but where the princes went, at what time, who was looking after them, who was paying for their food, who was paying for their clothes. You know, if they're looking at accountancy records, then this is the sort of stuff that you would think would be in there. Um, uh, my Another question I had was, what advantage does Richard have uh, exiling Edward into the same country? Um, again, I don't feel like that was... Uh, even if um it, well Edward seems to have been kept very close so even if he's been taken from the tower that he is somehow um he, he's been moved around the country uh and then into the channel Islands. it seems very close very close so that doesn't that doesn't make much sense to me um one of my other questions was why keep quiet about being Edward the v and then splash it all over your tomb um that question still stands. Um, and the other one was what advantage does Henry VII have for allowing Edward V to stay in the country if that indeed is who is living out his days in Somerset? Again, that's not answered. It seems very dangerous to me to still be here. So um, so it's interesting. I think the 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 um The idea of having an army of people going out and looking at archives is is very exciting. I'd like to see perhaps that employed with other things. I think you need to do it without looking for something particular. Uh, The time period idea is is interesting. So just what is there for 1483 or whatever period you're looking at? Um, I think though too, claim that there's that this is a, a an objective piece of work is is it's not it it, it, it is not it can't be she, she talks about how she's emotional uh and can't do the checks on one of the documents particularly you know that, that's just indicative of of the whole thing as far as I'm concerned um and the assessment of the documents especially given in the documentary which which some of you will be seeing tonight when it comes to it, if you listen to what they're saying, they've authenticated, they've authenticated that the document is contemporary. That's it. They haven't authenticated uh, that who, who it was written by. Um, there's no mention of the, like, for instance, the Richard of York, so, excuse me, he, he he signs it Richard of England. There's, there's no, okay, tell me where else that is that, he would have written that at a time where it was undisputed. Um, his his claim, his his position is undisputed. How do you know that that's his signature? Because it, I could write a piece of paper now and say this happened, this happened, this happened, and 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 write it. Kath, I don't know, Catherine Middleton. And in and in six hundred years time, is someone going to pick that up and go, oh, Catherine Middleton said this happened. Future Queen of England at this point says this happened. Need to know more about how that is authenticated. Um. Um. I, I have to say as well, I did notice that the uh, success. Well, in fact, this was a direct answer by Philippa to a, a question that Matt posed at the end. You know, why should sort of people? I can't remember his exact question. Excuse me, but it's, it's sort of why would should people um, who are skeptical? Why should they entertain this idea that we found more, um, more evidence directly contrary to this received historical narrative? And her, she cites finding Richard the Third as evidence as to why people should accept that this evidence says what they're saying it is. It's it's such a leap to say that because something happened in the past which has nothing to do with this that the evidence they've presented are. Uh, the way they've interpreted that evidence is correct. It just, it, it was so much of a leap. Um, um, so, yeah, so I think um, it is definitely one interpretation of the evidence. I don't think it, I don't think that that the evidence they've presented actually says what they say it says. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean that, but the leap is quite large without other supplementary evidence um um like for instance i've I've given you my my spurious uh, this is just to make you think um maximilian already has been promised the throne if richard iii dies without heirs richard iii actually has died without heirs because none of his uh nephew none of his nephews are legitimate and if maximilian puts one of these let's call them pretenders for the sake of argument on the throne and then can expose them as a, um, as a, uh, as a, a fraud, then he can put himself on the throne. I don't, I, you know, if we're going out for all theories, why that could be one as well. Um, so I'm still left with lots of questions. Um, it also, I will conclude with this, and this is what happened with another famous book, which I won't name because it doesn't need any publicity. Um, that there is somehow that the the that anyone who isn't like right, let me see how I'm going to put this anyone who isn't uh, in the camp of wanting to exonerate Richard III from of the murders of the Prince in the, the Tower, wanting to rehabilitate his uh, his. Um, reputation beyond doubt anyone who is outside of that camp is assumed to be of the camp that they think richard murdered them absolutely um and that they can't be swayed otherwise it assumes that we're sort of the rest of us and by the way i should have said at the beginning i have no skin in this game i i am not a ricardian i am not a henry the seventh enthusiast i i history is history and it's it's not a I don't think it should be a fan club uh of particular members of history I think as soon as you get into that you have bias um and I, I just don't in this case I'm, I'm interested to know what happened we're talking about children here uh I talked in the last video about the um the issue I see with the DNA excavation uh, uh if you wanted to um they got the bones out of the urn which is in the in Westminster Abbey supposedly the prince of the tower and uh DNA analysis of that what I think of that um but yeah so I have no skin in this game I'm not I'm not (laughs) I don't have any outcome particular outcome that I want or don't want but because I'm not in the camp of thinking that Richard should be completely exonerated of this it's sort of it feels like you're supposed to be in that one or you're wedded to the idea that he did kill that, that, that there's no sort of in between and therefore there's some sort of conspiracy um that we're all happy to um accept received history in this particular topic um for some reason um so I would argue that the weight given to the evidence actually demonstrates a lack of objectivity. I think too much weight has been given to this evidence in terms of the conclusions drawn. So I've probably kept you for long enough. That's an hour. I'm getting hot <laughs> the heating's come on. <laughs> um, let me know what you think in the comments. You might agree with me. You might disagree with me. It's fine. That's what we're here for. Um, Enjoy the documentary if you're watching it tonight. Um, It's out in the US tonight, I believe. And uh, uh, you've also got the Gone Medieval podcast with Matt Lewis that you can listen to. Uh, In a few weeks time, we're going to be having the only dissenting voice in that documentary, Nathan Amen. Amen. Catherine, how do you pronounce his name? Uh, we're going to have Nathan on anyway in uh, on History After Dark. So we haven't got any History After Dark tonight. We've taken um, we've taken a couple of weeks off for various reasons, uh, but next week we're back with Gareth Russell, and um, the week after, or was it two weeks after that, we'll let you know anyway. On History After Dark, Nathan, uh, who I like to say is the only dissenting voice in that documentary, uh, he will be on History After Dark. So that will be that will be a fun one, definitely. Right, everybody, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed that. Like I say, put in the comments what you think. Please give this video uh, a thumbs up if you've enjoyed it, and I will see you all very soon. All right, bye. Bye, everyone.